This evening, we're returning to the book of Joshua as we now continue our series. This evening, we'll be looking at chapter 18 and 19. Chapter 18 and 19 is 79 combined verses. So if you had any plans for tomorrow, put them off. Actually, what I am going to do is I'm going to read like the first 10 uh, verses, and then I'm going to read a couple of of verses beyond that. So I'm always saying as we read God's word to pay close attention to it because this is God's holy and inerrant word. Here I'm asking that you would pay close attention so that you can follow along with me after I leave chapter 10. So instead of reading 79, 78 or so verses, we'll just read the ones that I will be commenting on. There's no need for us to talk about the exact cities and the exact territories and so on and so forth. So with those words in mind, uh, if you're utilizing a pew Bible, you'll find uh, this chapter, chapter 18 on page 192. This is God's, again, holy and inerrant word. So let us give careful attention to it and I'll prompt you uh, to which verses to go as we go along. So chapter 18, verse 1, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your father, has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritances, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph shall continue in their territory on the north. And you shall describe the land in seven divisions and bring the description here to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord our God. The Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and half the tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. So the men arose and went, and Joshua charged those who went to write the description of the land, saying, Go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me. And I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. So the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh. And Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land to the people of Israel to each his portion. Verse 11. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clan, came up. Verse 19 of chapter, chapter 19, verse 1. The second lot came out for Simeon. Verse 10. The third lot came up for the people of Zebulon. Verse 17. The fourth lot came up for the people of Issachar. Verse 24. The fifth lot came out for the tribe of the people of Asher. Verse 32, the sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali. And verse 40, the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan. Then all the territories and cities and so on and so forth were listed under those particular headings. 
And now I'd like us to read from verse 47 to the end of the chapter, which will be verse 51. It reads, verse 47, when the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Lashem. And after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Lashem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. When they had finished distributing, 49, verse 49, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritances, the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua, the son of Nun. By command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked, timnath Sirah, in the hill country of Ephraim. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. These are the inheritance that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the father of houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by Lot at Shiloh before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. So they finish dividing the land. Amen. Father, we thank you again for giving us an opportunity to sit at your feet and to hear from you. We pray once again that you would speak to our minds, speak to our hearts, illumine them in such a way that it would cause us to be molded and shaped into the image of our Lord and growing our zeal for you and for your people and for the mission that you've called us to. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This past January, I preached a New Year's message where I started off by mentioning the results of a survey that was conducted by a young lady who attended Howard University uh, during the same time frame as Dorothy and myself. I mentioned that she is currently a, a highly sought after fitness buff and in one of her presentations, she emphasized the fact that 80% of all New Year's resolutions go out the window by February 1st. In the spirit of John Kwasney's VBS programming, I then labeled that phenomenon as the case of the revolving resolutions. I then suggested that some of us, myself included, needed to jump off the carousel of unsuccessful resolutions and jump on the carousel of committing ourselves to growing in the knowledge of our Lord. I understood then, as I do now, that those two roads do not have to be mutually exclusive, but one definitely needs to take precedence over the other. And that is the way of the Lord needs to take precedence. And so here we are at the mid-year point. We are in June, providentially with a text that allows us to hear and personally answer the question, how's it going? Are you still running the race in a manner consistent with the God-oriented resolutions you set for yourself at the beginning of the year or in general? Are you availing yourselves of the means of grace God has provided to you for the purpose of growing in the image of his son and in the knowledge of his person? The text we have before us can be handled in quite a few different ways, but to this evening I want to go about dealing with this mid-year checkup by focusing on three things in our text. First, the significance of Shiloh. 
an enemy called complacency, and a grand example. So first, the the significance of Shiloh. Verse 1 says, Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting there. The land lay subdued before them. Here I agree with Ralph Davis who, when commenting on this verse, said, Israel's setting up the tabernacle at Shiloh hints at the dawn of a new day. They have come to a place of rest, or as the verse says, the land lay subdued before them. Now we need to understand that when it says that the land lay subdued before them, it is not talking about all of the promised land, for even the the context here will show you that they still have to go in and deal with enemies in the territories that they were being given. It's talking specifically about Shiloh. You see, the people previously after crossing the Jordan mustered or gathered at Gilgal, which would be akin to our Pentagon or strategic wartime headquarters, if you will. Now they have arrived at a place that God by and through his providence had carried them to. Make no mistake about it. They've gotten this far by faith in God whose word has led them and whose power has kept them. And what does he require of them? What does he require of us as he's leading us? The same thing that he's always sought from them. That they would love him with all their heart, all their soul, and all their strength. That they would worship him without thought for any of the other gods with the little g that were worshipped in that land by those who previously occupied it. And that God would be at the forefront of their thinking at all times. Concerning the forefront of their thinking, let me bring to your remembrance God's instruction to his people when they were in the wilderness by Mount Sinai. And here I'm speaking specifically of chapter 2 in the book of Numbers, where God, through Moses, provided instructions on how the people would arrange their homes in relationship to the tent of meeting, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the tabernacle was housed, the place where God abided with his people. The tabernacle was made to be centrally located immediately surrounded by the the Levites and then by the other tribes, including Ephraim and Manasseh in place of Joseph. Three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. In Numbers 2-2, the people then were specifically instructed to camp, to have their house arranged in such a way that it was facing the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. That is to say the entrance of their homes were to face the God who had rescued them, was keeping them, and would carry them. And so as they rose early in the morning, unlike in Exodus 2 where they rose to play, and the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, tell us that there was gross immorality. No, in what they were supposed to do as they rose early in the morning, they united as a a covenant people, but individually in their own households, were to face the day, start off the day facing God, to remember that he was the center of their joy, that he was the one that was responsible for all they had. All came from him, through him, and was to go to him. They started their day with offerings, if you remember, and they ended their day the same way. In the book of Daniel, I believe that 
Daniel had this particular mindset when he prayed, as the book tells us, three times a day. Now here they are, back in our text at a place that God, according to Jeremiah 7, 12, called his own and said he made his name to dwell there at first. This is the first place that God said that he would dwell, his name would be there after those, it was in the temple. So like at Sinai, it's a place that's centrally located and like at Sinai, it's a place that by its very orientation instructs the people to place God at the forefront of their thinking. God has brought them to a place of rest and he is now in the midst of them. In Exodus 8:1, we hear God saying, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. They were to be set free for the purpose of worshiping God and enjoying him forever. Here in our text, we see that he has brought them to this place of freedom, to this place of rest, where they are now free to worship him as he has commanded. So brothers and sisters, I want you to know that Jesus is our Shiloh. When you talk about the place where God resides, where God abides, when you talk about, again, where God's name is, later on in the New Old Testament, you move on, and you hear that it's the temple that was built. And then in the New Testament, you hear Jesus alluding to the fact that he is the true temple. He is the one that set us free and caused us to be in him. In that light, listen to 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And again, Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. All of us were in bondage to sin. None of us were able to please God. None of us could commend ourselves before God and be reconciled to him. Jesus' finished work on the cross has enabled us to engage the works that will indeed please him. He has enabled us to carry forth with the Great Commission. Outside of his work, there is no such thing. And just as God was in their midst, Jesus said, Lo, I will be with you always. And, and before physically departing, he said, I will not leave you comfortless. Though he sits on the right-hand side of the Father, he has given us his spirit. And so we are connected to our Lord constantly. Isaiah himself said of him, his name will be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. And so now we have him by and through his spirit, but we will have him even more as time comes and he reveals himself again. And so question, brothers and sisters, in light of what I just said and how I started off, this is one of those, again, checkups, you know, look under the hood. Is God the center of your life right now? Or are you still the captain of your own ship, your own life? Remember, there's seven territories that have not been taken over yet. And as you'll see, there's a reason for that, right? But if the fly on the wall were to tell on you, I'm not saying I got flies in my house, by the way, okay? If the fly on the wall was to tell on you, would he say that you consistently, not perfectly, none of us are perfect, but consistently take time Take everything that you have to God in prayer, that you acknowledge God in all your ways as Proverbs 3 calls us to, 
that you do all things as unto the Lord, like Colossians 3.23 says, or would you instead say that you vehemently insist on doing things your way and doing so without any thought for God? Listen, if God is at the forefront of our thinking, here's how we know. If God is at the forefront of our thinking, then all the imperatives will also be at the forefront of our mind. Hence, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? This leads us to our second point, an enemy called complacency. At this juncture, five of the tribes have received their inheritance, Gad, Reuben, the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joseph, and Judah. God has given all of Israel the land he promised, but for whatever reason, and none is given, seven of the tribes had not yet taken what God had given them. Now, although we aren't given any exact reasons, we can surmise from the tone of Joshua's question that those reasons were not good. In verse 3, Joshua asked, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you? Commenting on this question, John Calvin wrote, There is no doubt that Joshua summoned, summoned this meeting in order to raise them from their liturgy. For they did, do not come forward spontaneously with angry, any, angry, any proposal, but he begins with upbraiding them with having been sluggish and remiss in entering on the inheritance which God had bestowed upon them. It is easy to infer from his speech that they had shown great alacrity. That means cheerful readiness. I had to look it up. At the onset, but that there had been no perseverance. Calvin asserts that God's people were initially on fire. They were excited by the prospect of receiving what God had given them, but now for some reason they had not done what God had left, had left for them to do. That was with him at the forefront of their heart and mind. Grab hold of all that he had promised them. Subdue it and have dominion over it. And by virtue of doing so, cause his kingdom to be advanced throughout the earth. And so again, we don't know exactly why they didn't go forth as they should, but knowing our own human nature and our own frailties and our own fallenness, knowing those things and the battles we fight against the world, again, our human nature and the enemy, I believe we can reasonably entertain some possibilities in as much as it helps us to reflect in our own complacencies. So with that, how about this one? Maybe just being rescued and in a good, safe place was good enough for them. They had been delivered from slavery. Now they're in a place, again in Shiloh, where there's safety. There's no urgency to do anything else. They're being well taken care of. I imagine they have all the food they need. They got cable TV and, and everything else that you can name. You know, they got nine cell phones in one house. I mean, whatever you want on this, they had those things. And so there is no urgency to then go on and to do the things that God has called them to do to finally and once and for all possess that which he had purposed for them with the purpose, remember, of again advancing his kingdom, not just in those territories, but in the earth. In the world, 
There is no reason for them to leave the comfort of where they are. Is that how we are? Is that where we are? We don't want to go out because we're comfortable with where we are. Or how about this one? They possess the head knowledge that God was with them, but experientially their faith in their own ability superseded their confidence in God's ability to bring his promises to pass. An example of this in our day would be in the area of evangelism. Jesus said, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. He also said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. And again, he says, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, it is against this backdrop that he says to us, go and make disciples of all nations. Now, notice that in all these, all three of the statements that Jesus makes here, he says, I will bring what I said. Not I might, not I could. I will bring what I have said to pass. Knowing that, even so, how many of us are willing to admit that we are more than a little bit apprehensive to evangelize in our spheres of influence? to evangelize in our neighborhood, to evangelize around our home, to evangelize at work, to wear the badge of Christ on our shoulders wherever we go. How many of us are willing to, to say that we're a little bit apprehensive to go out and to fulfill the purposes to, that God has called us to in the earth concerning a warring or dealing with the world, with our human nature and with Satan? How many of us? Again, also in this area, complacency. As I just said, our God has called us to grow in the knowledge of him and in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a lifelong endeavor and calling. So how are we doing? You know, I'm here and, and I have a sense of preaching to the choir because you're the ones that go to Sunday school. You're the ones that, that, that are in uh, discipleship groups. You're the ones that are volunteering for, for things left, right, and so on and so forth. The 20% doing the work of the 80%. But perchance there is someone that's hearing or someone in here that's not among that number. That is a heart check that you have to ask yourself. Are you availing yourself? I pray we would be like the people in our passage, at least in the beginning, the onset Look at the response. It's the beginning of verse 8. So the men arose and went. Now the word arose used in verse 8 is the same word that's used when God said to Jonah, arise and go to Nineveh. It's the same word that is then used to describe jo Jonah's response when it says Joseph, Jonah rose to flee. We're in the opposite direction that God called him to. It communicates called for, or describes immediate action. So let me go back. Immediate action, as soon as God said to them, go and do what I've called you to do. Here is what I would like for you to do. Here is what is going to cause you to grow. Here are the things that I've provided for you to grow. Here are the things that will cause you to see me, to know me, to understand me, to gravitate towards the people who are in the body. Here are these things. 
Now go immediately. When it says to go and make disciples of all nations, same thing. Go. Don't hesitate. Don't get caught up in your own things. Everything that you do, again, Colossians 3, do as unto the Lord. Does that mean that we don't enjoy entertainment? We don't enjoy? No, absolutely it does not mean that. But we do all things with an eye, again, on serving our Lord. Now let me go back and say this. Notice that both examples are provided concerning excuses that might have been made have one main thing in common. They put self in front of God. I preached a sermon one night and called it the MMI syndrome, the me, myself, and I syndrome, and showed how that was the downfall of Eve, how that called the downfall at the Tower of Babel and so on and so forth. But it's that same thing. It's about me in both situations. And so here, again, they put self in front of God, and that is why I believe in Luke 14, 26, Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Here I'm highlighting, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. We know that when this says, hate mother, father, brother, what it is saying is love God more. It is definitely not saying to go out and hate your family members or anything like that. Love God, have him first, have him primary, okay? But instead, and yes, even his own life. But that's not always the case. So now listen, there are consequences for this complacency. In our passage, the tribe of Dan was not able to conquer the area, and that's why I read about the tribe of Dan when we did our opening reading. They were not able to conquer the land that was set apart for them. Instead, they had to conquer a different land, Lashem, which they later called Dan. Concerning the situation of non-conquest, Calvin wrote, Therefore, with base heartlessness, in that while the full time for routing the enemy had arrived, God had made it so, if you remember, that the people in the line were afraid because the word had went out of how God was causing them to rout everyone. And so now, after a period of time, you can imagine that that dissipated. They got strong in the line. They got rose in their confidence, whatever the case may be. But with base heartlessness in that, while the full time for routing the enemy had arrived, they, by their delays, held back and suspended the effect of the divine goodness, for they had been centered, for had they been centered on God's provision if they were Christ-centered in their thinking, if they were pursuing the things of God in their thinking and faithfully embraced the results it would have resulted in. In other words, if they had demonstrated faith in what God has promised and because of that immediately go out, they would doubtless have been prompt and expeditious in carrying on the war. Nay, would have hastened like conquerors to a triumph. If they truly had faith, and truly believed that God was going to deliver them, if they truly were walking in that manner, then they would have truly exercised it, and you would have seen it in their work. Hence, James says, show me a person's fate, and I'll show you it by their work. Simply stated, because they did not take hold of God's promises and immediately act upon it, they were not able to experience the full blessings of what God had provided to them. 
So question, are we guilty of this same disposition? Answer, you bet we are. And again, there are consequences associated with that disposition. In the case of Dan, this was a shadow of the moral depravity what would come to characterize this tribe or land. Dan, for instance, was the place where Jeroboam initially set up the high places so that the people of God would not go to Jerusalem to worship God in the way that he had prescribed. Whenever we don't avail ourselves of the means of grace that God has given us, whenever we forsake the gathering of ourselves as is the custom of some is, whenever we walk away from the things that God said the way Jonah did, we can expect that we will be a lost sheep subject to wolves, subject to even the chastening of our God to bring us back. So, okay, enough of the, the apropos side dry tribe. Back to the people. After being prompted by Joshua, representatives in, in groups of three immediately arose and, and went into the remaining areas and did as they were instructed. Four times we're told that they were to write down to capture the land in written form, doing so with an eye towards their inheritance. And after that, Joshua would cast lots to see who would receive what area. And this was one more way of our text demonstrating that it was God who was distributing the land to them, or as reminded in Acts 17, 26, he is the one who determines our allotted periods and the boundaries of our dwelling places. And in the case of the remaining seven tribes, that is what we see recorded here from the chapter 1811 through 1948. That's what's recorded here. Which brings us to our final observation, a grand example. In all the things that you hear me talking about, complacency and waywardness and people, the things that we saw at AI, and all the things that might have happened negatively, the one thing that you could say that happened negatively with Joshua is he failed to go to God and was deceived as a result of that from the Gibeonites. But that itself was not a lack of faith. Joshua is a complete example, a grand example of faith. And so as you look here at, chapter, at verses 49, you see that he then receives his inheritance after everyone. And so I want to say a word to those who, first of all, all of us are in leadership. All of us. You're either in leadership in your home, you're either in leadership in civil government, you're either in lead, uh, leadership in, in, in the church, all three spheres of authority that God has established. Little kids, you're in school, you're in leadership with other kids. All of us are in leadership. So I want you to see here that Joshua received his inheritance last. Joshua walked faithfully before the Lord and received all that God had to give him after he had shepherded everyone else into getting what they were supposed to get. He placed himself before, after everyone else. Okay? The other thing I want you to see here is how good of a bookend this is. Because remember, this entire, or you might not remember, this entire section started off in chapter 14, where Caleb exercised faith and asked God for his inheritance in line with that faith and immediately went out and operated in what God had given him to, to, to take possession of it 
and successfully was able to do that. And then we saw the fate of his daughter. We saw the fate as his son-in-law. All fate surrounding Caleb and fate surrounded Joshua as book ends here. Both men were promised that they would receive an inheritance and both men walked faithfully before God in all the ways that God has prescribed for them. They are a grand example for us to follow. But brothers and sisters, Jesus is an even greater example. For you see, Jesus, he left the equality, he left the, the, not wanting to hold equality with God, not considering anything of that nature, but left his prerogatives aside, the prerogatives of his kingship, and came and became a servant and did not come here to lead, to be a dictator, to guide, to think, but he came here like Joshua did to serve God and to operate in God's principles and to obey and submit to God perfectly. Where Joshua might have been deceived by the Gibeonites, Jesus stayed in the will of the Father completely the entire time he was here. And now he is on the right-hand side of the Father interceding for us. He is still working on our behalf. He still has not come into his final and, and, and full possession of us yet. You know when that will be? The marriage supper of the Lamb. I'm sorry if I messed up your eschatology, okay? But I am telling you the time is coming when Jesus himself will be with us. Our God will abide with us in his fullness. And so, in, if you look at the end of 15, it talks about Joshua and him receiving his inheritance, right? And then it says in 50, by command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he has, Timnath Sirah in the hill country of Ephraim. And then look at what it says. And he rebuilt the city and settled in it. Now, if you know the book of Revelation, you know that when it talks about the new Jerusalem, it goes on to say that he took me and he showed me the June Jerusalem and it was the body of Christ. All of us were broken sticks. All of us are messed up. You name it, okay? But there is coming a time when we, the new Jerusalem, okay, will be with the Jesus who will rebuild us once and forevermore. He is building us even now, shaping us, molding us into his image. But there is coming a time when he will rebuild us perfectly. We will no longer be on this road to glory called sanctification, but we will be with him in glory. And so in the meantime, he has given us our task, the responsibilities that we have. We've been saved, delivered, rescued from Egypt. We were taken into the wilderness. We're in a place of rest in Christ. It is only in Christ that we are in rest. We're in a place of rest in Christ, and in the midst of that rest, we're being called to go and to make disciples of all nations. We're being called to love one another as Christ loved the church. We're called to, to, to abide with one another. That's another thing that you see here at Shallow. It is a place of unity. Wherever the Spirit of God is, once again, not only is there peace, but peace breeds unity. And so we are called, as we look at this passage and we see these individuals coming into their full inheritance, they're excited because all that God had promised 
way back in Genesis 12, 7, has come to pass. All that God promised in Genesis 3:15 has come to pass. The seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. And now we are in that seed, Jesus Christ. Now, therefore, go and do the things that he has called us to for his glory and his purposes. This passage ends by saying, chapter, verse 51, these are the inheritances that Eleazar the priest and Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers, houses of the tribes of the people of Israel distributed by lot at shallow before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. I want you to notice the fathers, the tribes, there's a whole bunch of people involved here. Again, Jesus is sitting on the right-hand side of the Father. You and I are his priesthood that's down here doing this work. You and I are the ones that's been called to go into the highways and the byways. You are the ones, you and I are the hands and feet of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And you and I are now called to go out with that which we possess and use it to advance the kingdom of our Lord and the fame of his name. And all who love Jesus said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for this, these two marvelous chapters and for what we have discovered here together as a congregation. We pray, Lord, that we would recognize that we have peace, that we were reconciled with our Lord, with our God through Jesus Christ. And therefore, there's no enmity. We are at peace with our God. We are in Christ and now have been called by him as he is in our midst to go out and fulfill the purposes to which we were called. The very works that were ordained before us before the foundation of this world. Your word tells us that all those that are his will, the father has given him rather, will be his. And so we pray that as we engage his work, we will do so with a zeal knowing that it is him that is working in and through us for his glory and for his purposes. Renew our strength by the power of your spirit. As we have this midway point of this particular year, we ask that we do not recommit ourselves just to the things that we said in the beginning of the year, but period, that our lives would reflect those who are on mission for you in every sphere of influence to which you send us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.